in case you haven't noticed, uh, there's a lot of guys named Dan here at Parkway Community Church. Um, we've, uh, I think I was the first one uh, 17 and a half years ago, um, 17 years ago, and I wasn't the first one. No, boy, you left. You don't count. But uh, now there's a whole bunch of them. There's Dan Conklin. There's, uh, there's Dan Overby, of course. You know him. And, of course, he named his son Dan or, or Daniel. And then there's um, Dan Stodden and Daniel Duran. And, and, and uh, let's see, there's another one I'm leaving out. Uh, Daniel Lum. Is there another Daniel? Well, yeah, I was going to get to that. But then uh, there's, uh, of course, my name's Dan, and I named my son Dan. There's a whole bevy of Dan's here at Parkway Community Church, and, and that's cool and all, you know, but when you're together in a common group, it can make it kind of tough. There's been times in a small group where one of the wives says, Dan, and then a couple of us go, what, you know, um, because it's confusing. So you have to come up with alterations to the name in order to specify which Dan you're talking about, right? I mean, that's, a name is supposed to be able to differentiate and isolate who you're talking to. And when a whole bunch of guys are named Dan, well, it's kind of difficult. So we come up with alterations. Sometimes it's last name. Like we have Dan Mundy, too. Hey, Mundy, you know, call him by the last name so as not to confuse people or Deckard or whatever. Or we add the, the um, initial of the last name to the end of Dan, like Dan O. I think everybody here knows Dan is Dan Overby because it's Dan, uh, Dan O because it's Dan Overby. Um, and, uh, and that's how we kind of differentiate, specify which Dan we're talking about. And just for the sake of the record, never under any circumstances are you to call me Dan D. You can call me Dude, you can call me Deckard, you can call me whatever, but I don't like to sound like a doll, okay? Uh, I know in saying that, I'm just going to tease you to tease me back. But um, you can tell, like, kind of names that are common, um, popular, um, it could be hard to specify which one you're, you're talking to. And, and that's also true when it comes to the name of God. Uh, in our English vocabulary, the word God is a generic one. A Hindu would be fully comfortable talking about Shiva or Vishnu as, as a God, spelled the same way, G-O-D. It's a, it's, a, it's a generic name for God, not a bad name. It's just a generic one that'll cover a whole bunch of uh, claims of divinity, it's a generic term. Uh, the Greek term for God is the same. Maybe you've heard of the word theos, out of which we get the word theology. Well, you could talk about Zeus being a theos, or um, Aphrodite being a theos, or, or uh, Apollo being a theos. That is, it is a generic term for a deity. Uh, the same is true in, in Hebrew. Um, there is a two-letter word, the earliest word and most generic of all for divinity is, is El. E-L. Or its elongated word, Elohim. The very first name um, given to the Lord of the Bible in Genesis 1.1 is that generic name, El, or Elohim. In the beginning, El, God, generic, created the heavens and the earth. Now the problem with the term, not that it's a bad term, is that it is... Generic, it can refer to and has referred to in the Old Testament to other deities as well. So, for example, the Phoenician god Ashtra is referred to as an El or Elohim. Or, or the, the god Dagon of the Philistines is referred to as an El. Um, or the Canaanite gods of Baal, referred to as Elohim. So it's a generic term, right? And one thing I know about the Lord in the Bible 
is that he's passionate about differentiating himself from all other false gods. That is, he's passionate about making a distinctive name for himself that God moves from generic to specific. And um, that specific name that he gives to his people by which he will be identified, that's not generic but specific, is found in Exodus 3. Now just to back up in history for a moment, Exodus 6 tells us, uh, I should say God tells Moses, um, I did not reveal myself to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob by the name I'm giving you in Exodus 3. I made known to them my name El, or El Shaddai, or El El Elyon. That is additions to El to clarify. That's like saying Dano or Dan Money, whatever. But here, in Exodus 3, in the midst of the most important redemptive event in the Old Testament, um, God is going to give Moses a name by which he will identify himself for his people for all generations, and it is arguably the most sacred name in all the Bible. All right? So let us read the story in which it, it takes place and get a sense of the importance of this name. A name reveals something about God. It is distinctive and it is identifying. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of Exodus. It's worth reading. It's, many of you know the story. Some of you don't. You might be new to the Bible, so read it together. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And for sake of geography, just so you know, it's a real place. This is somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula, modern day. That's where Mount Horeb is. Um, Verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, And to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of, and God here is Elohim. It's that generic word, El. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And the last slide. And he said, this is the Lord speaking, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers, the God being El, generic, of your fathers has sent me to you, and they shall ask me, what is his name? 
what shall I say to them? El is too generic. God of Abraham, well, what's his name? I mean, every God goes by the name of El. What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, and these are words, I hear Charlton Heston when I, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's a name to be retained by God's people forever for all generations. You back up here to the name itself, the sacred name, I am. Obviously, L is too generic. And I, I thought about this when God says, hey, go and say that I am sent you. I am. It's simple, yet it's profound. It's common, and yet it's utterly unique. It's built on the most used verb in English, Greek, or Hebrew language. The simple word to be. I am a guy. That uses the word am. Hey, we're, we are at church. That's another I am to be verb. We use it all the time. It's prolific. That's why it's so common. And yet God chooses of all things this very, very common word of existence to say this is my name. I am. You tell him the I am sent me. Now, what I want to do here is I got to do a little grammar with you. And, and for those of you who flunked grammar or hated grammar in, in, in any form of school, just hang with me here for a moment because I think what I'm about to say is important. You'll notice um, three little sections there in yellow where he says, I am who I am. He says again, I am has sent me to you. And then the third yellow is the Lord. All of those words come from the same verb root. Um, the idea to be, or is, or am. But they are inflected differently. That is based upon um, what person is speaking. And we do the same thing in English. Um, am versus is. We don't say I is, unless you come from the swamp down in Louisiana. Or you don't say he am. You don't. You just You don't do that. And if you happen to live in the swamp down in Louisiana, I apologize. But it's just the only difference between I am and what's translated as the Lord. One is first person, I am who I am, and the, the thing translated Lord actually means simply he is. That's what it means. Or let me give you the sound pronunciation in Hebrew so that you can kind of hear the similarity. I am in Hebrew is pronounced ehwe. He is, in Hebrew, is pronounced Yahweh. Yahweh is I am, Yahweh is he is. Same basic root, same basic name, one's first person, one's third person. And it's the third person, Yahweh, that is the sacred name in the scripture. Yahweh, he is. He is. Same basic idea, I am, he is. Now, the trouble with our English translation, just so you know, you need to know this stuff, and if you do know it, then, then bear with me because others probably don't know it. You'll notice that third section in yellow is the Lord. That doesn't sound anything like he is. 
because our English translators have followed the Jewish tradition of not translating the sacred name of Yahweh. So in order to protect the sanctity of it, they just translate it Lord. All right? You go to a synagogue, at least an Orthodox synagogue to this day, and a rabbi reads from the Hebrew scrolls. Every time they come to that sacred name, which is four letters, um, Yahweh, they will say the name Adonai over the top of it because they don't want to even say the sacred name. Adonai, literal translation, is Lord. So that's where we get the idea of the Lord. But... Fortunately for us, by the way, this is my own personal opinion, when someone gives you the gracious gift of knowing the name, I think it is an honorable thing to actually use the name. My, it's a gift. And I think some of the reasoning behind the retranslation of it kind of boils down to a legalistic approach to trying to protect the sanctity of God's name. End of my commentary. So our English translators have translated Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, every time that sacred name Yahweh, or He is, is in your Old Testament. So that's how you can discern. This is the name versus just kind of Lord, like, yeah, the king is my Lord, or like they do in the English movies, my Lord, you know, that kind of thing. It's... Uh, so when you see capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, your Old Testament, you'll know that's the sacred name. And for me, just recognizing that, and hopefully for you, recognizing that, things will leap off of the page as you come to Scripture as to how important this name is, that it solicits the highest praise and devotion and sacrifice of God's people when they, they talk about or hear his name. For example, Psalm 113. I mean, the psalmist writes, Praise the Lord, capital L-O, Capital R-D, that is praise Yahweh. Praise, O servants of the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. And I won't do that for the rest of this. Praise the name of Yahweh. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. From this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun till its setting, the name of Yahweh is to be praised. Verse 4, Yahweh is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like Yahweh, our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? That name's pretty dang important to the psalmist. Who is like him? Bless his name from the rising of the sun till its setting. We're supposed to be praising him because it's that awesome. Not because we have to, but because his worthiness solicits it from his people. It's all right there. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. It's... It's the name. It's prolific. And by the way, the psalmist didn't have a problem saying it over and over and over again. Now, what is it about this name? What is, why is it so sacred? And why is it so packed that it would call forth this kind of praise and blessing and service? So with our remaining time, let me draw out for you five implications of, of what this name embodies. Why it's that important. Two of them come from the word itself, and three from the context in which the word or name is given. One implication, and the bare meaning of the name Yahweh, or He is, is that it reveals Him as the ever-existent one. I mean, that's what it is. The word is means existence. To be, I am. God's saying, I'm here, I'm living, I'm alive, I'm not a myth, I'm not a fable, I am. 
I exist. I'm not a was. I'm not a will be. I'm an all-pervasive eternal is. I exist. And I think it's more than just bare existence, but the implication is that he is the foundation of all other existence. That underneath you and I's use of is and am and are is him. That is to say, I breathe. Why? Because he is. We gather. Why? Because he is. We laugh and get married. Why? Because he is. His existence is the foundation of all other existence. His life is the foundation of all other life. Everything comes from him as a source in the origin. He says, I am. All right? That's implication number one, the ever-existent one. Number two, he's not just a God who exists. But he is a God who is personal, the ever-personal one. That is to say, backing up to Exodus 3, God didn't say to Moses, when you go down to the people of Israel, tell them Am sent you. Go down to the people of Israel and say Is sent you. That's like your, your bare naked word is or am. It's like, no, he chose to put a personal pronoun in there. It's really important. It's not Yah, it's Ehweh. That is, I am. I, the most important subject in all of the Bible, I is there. I am, a singular personal pronoun. I am. He, singular personal pronoun, is. He's a person who is, a, is, 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 is a personable. He has all the qualities of personality, which means he can love, he speaks, he communicates, he can be loved, he can be communed with and fellowshiped with. He responds, he hears, he sees, he has emotions of, of justified anger and overwhelming joy. He has all of the attributes of true personality. And you might think, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, let's just paint a little bit of a contrast here to what a lot of other people believe about God in generic sense. Um, Growing here in the West, I think most of you know, and already deeply rooted in the East, is a concept of God as pantheistic. That's simply a way of saying all is God. Of a way of saying the universe and everything in it is eternal and is to be equated with God, so therefore all the universe is God. And out of that comes the worldview of Mother Earth has given birth to us, and people will actually worship it. But that is a very impersonal view of who God is. When you find yourself heartbroken because someone in your family has committed suicide, you can get down on your knees, and you can look down at the dirt, and you can pour out your heart, And it's never going to console you. It's not going to speak to you. It's not going to provide what you need. Why? Because it's impersonal. You can talk to a river. You can talk to a tree. You can talk to the dolphins, which is very popular and in vogue. But you know the fact of the matter is you're going to get a squeak or a squawk. You're not going to get consolation because it's not a personal divinity. Yahweh, however, says, I It's me. There's a he. There's an I. I respond. I see. I interact. That's part of the definition of his very name. That he is the ever-existent one. That he's personal. But if you take those first two by themselves, Yahweh is seriously lacking. Because we could have an existent God who's personal, who just simply isn't around. Like walled up in some 
celestial heaven somewhere doesn't care about us. Tiny people made of earth and clay. But that's something else that comes out, another implication drawn mostly from the context of him giving his name. And that is, he reveals himself as the ever-present one. Present. Not distant, but present. Let me take you back to verse 7 of Exodus 3 with some underlines and some bolded points. Then the Lord, notice capital L, capital O, capital R-D, Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. Because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a land that is good, broad land. Just take in those words, like, Part of Yahweh's existence and personality is to be present and caring about his people, as seen in the verbs of he sees the affliction, he, he hears their cry, he knows their sufferings, not just intellectually, but by way of sympathy and care, that and he comes down personally to deliver them out of the hands of, of the Egyptians and to bring them up personally. This is a picture of of someone who is very, very near and present with his people. And that's, that's true of, the, of how God is pictured all the way through the Bible, of wandering with his people through the wilderness and, and eventually coming and being amongst his people, dwelling in human flesh amongst his people so that they could behold his glory. And even after Jesus left, he didn't want to leave us orphans, so he gave us his Holy Spirit so his presence could be with us. Like God does not want to be separate from his people. That's part of the defining aspect of who Yahweh is. Present. Present with his people. And that's not just true back then. It's been true ever since. You know, he's present. He's present in this room. He knows your sufferings intimately and sympathetically. He, he knows and hears the cry of your heart. He knows the afflictions. Personally involved in whatever's going on in this room. And where our heart, this is where the faith thing comes in, where our heart begins to believe that that's really true, then we find ourselves able to live with a depleting sense of fear and a greater sense of confidence. I mean, that's what, that's what did it for King David, right? When he wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. And by the way, how is Lord spelled in the first verse of, of Psalm 23? It's capital L, capital O, capital R-D. Yahweh is my shepherd. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Present. So when you hear the name Yahweh, one of the things you need to remember, he, he's real, he exists. He's personal. I can talk to him. I can speak to him. And I can expect that he's going to lead me in a multiplicity of ways. And to know that he's present here, he knows it. And even though I may not feel it or see it all the time, that doesn't mean it's true. I can't see a speck of sunshine in this room, but that doesn't mean it's not shining outside. There are times when he, you know, Hides his face, and what do we do in those moments? Well, we rest on his unchanging grace, as the, as the psalmist says. It's still true, regardless of whether in the moment we feel it or not, he's there and he's present with his people, and to let our heart believe that. But if we were to stop here with these three, that God is existent and personal and present, we'd still be lacking. 
Because he can be existent, personal, and present and not be all-powerful, in which case God can't man up to take care of things, that he could be overwhelmed, that perhaps evil, evil will get the upper hand and God will find himself in a place of defeat. And that's another implication of his name that's drawn from the context and I think also from his name itself. That is, the chapter reveals him, or the name, as the sovereign one. The sovereign one, that is, the king, the one who's all-powerful. And as I said, I think that's implicit in the name, and it's explicit in chapter 3 of Exodus. It's implicit in the name because when you realize how I am, or he is, Yahweh, is distinctive from the way in which the gods in which Moses lived, you realize he's saying that I am above and apart from all this stuff over here. So, for example, like the world in which Moses grew up in, he heard about the god Ra. God Ra was associated as the sun god, so you wanted to worship Ra, you worship the sun. Like there's this connection between the names of the gods and the powers of creation. Ra, sun god, worship sun, worship Ra. You want to worship the Nile, which is another um, uh, power of creation that gives life to the, to the you know, Egyptian valley and provides grain and stuff. Well, there's this god named Happy. Nile, Happy. You want to worship Happy, you worship the Nile. There's a god who presides over the sky. His name is Newt. Sky, thunder, storms, rain, Newt. Worship the sky, you worship Newt. They're all associated with powers of creation. And you can almost hear with a sense of, of arrogance God saying, I am. Only well, it's not an arrogant statement, it's a truth statement. He's saying, I exist completely apart from and above all other things, all other created things. Like we as Christians can say and we should believe that the heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation screams about his majesty and goodness. But we must also say that creation is not and never will be God. It's simply a a manifestation of a, a, a revealing of just how powerful he is. We look at that and then we worship the true God. We don't worship creation. As beautiful and as good as it is. And it's quite amazing in that like soup of religion at that time where every god is connected to some Jupiter or Mars that God simply says, I am. You see what I'm It's like, that's to say he's exclusive, distinctive, apart from and above all other things. He's supreme. And that comes into view in the text itself. Because the Lord, if you want to read the rest of the story, continue on and read chapter 4 too, is that, Yahweh is going to send Moses into Egypt in the power and by the name of Yahweh. And Moses is going to unleash ten massive plagues that are going to bring the gods of the Egyptians down to their knees. Do you want to worship the god Ra, sun? God's like, boop, I just turned it off. That's a plague of darkness. How powerful is Ra? Not very powerful next to Yahweh, the I Am. You want to worship the Nile? God's like, Dip, it turns the blood. Where did your God happy go now? That sounds happy go now. <laughs> Yahweh. You get the sense, it's like, like Yahweh is showing himself to be supreme over all nations, over all powers, over all gods. He is the sovereign one. You know, you and, you and I, living in our time, we have to, and, and it was for all times, have to remember that over and over and over again. Over all realities, over all realms of dominions, stands one. 
and his name is Yahweh. I know that people like to think that the reins of power stop in an Oval Office. But the person who sits in the chair in that office can't do anything apart from a decree from Yahweh above. There was a man once named Nebuchadnezzar who thought he was pretty powerful. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 4. And God said to him, I am going to humble your pride. And he made him eat like a goat. Until he said, I came to my right mind. I looked up to heaven and I realized God is the one who humbles the proud and lifts up the humble. Yahweh has the power to turn a king's heart. There's, there, aren't, there is no competition. And just... We have to let that soak in every day. Um, you have to recognize that over evil, cancer, violence, death, nations, presidents, kings, civil wars, stands one who is in the process of bringing evil to its end and triumphing in goodness. And he is working all of that to the good of you and me and to the glory of his own name. And he stands over all that. And you have to live in the, the peace of knowing that's true. So he, the minute we think that we, you know, we're, we're doomed, the sky is falling, we've lost sight of who Yahweh really is. He is the sovereign one. And one final one final aspect, because if you add those first four up, it's still lacking. You have a God who exists, who's personal, who's present, and who's sovereign over all. But this story, beginning in Exodus chapter 3, is a story of redemption. He gives his name in the greatest redemption event in the Old Testament. Yahweh. That is, part of his name, part of who he is, is the redeeming one. That's the hopeful part. And the part that seals it all up. Let me go back to verse 7 of Exodus 3. And you hear the redemption. Hear the words of it. It's like, again, I have seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And this next part, I have come down to deliver out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of oppression and slavery, to bring them up into the land of blessing. I love the picture. Yahweh sees, he hears, he cares, he knows, and it says, I come down. I'm coming down to deliver, to bring them up. Yahweh comes down to deliver, to bring them up. Now, we're have you heard that U-shaped picture before? And before we go to where that ultimately finds its, its completion, just it's helpful to note that even this great redemptive event when God goes down, Yahweh comes down through the person of Moses and delivers his people out of oppression and brings them up into the land of freedom and blessing, that that was temporary. 
they ended up back in slavery again to the Philistines. And God had to bring someone like David to deliver and bring them back again to a place of blessing. And then they blew it again and they ended up in exile down into to Babylon, where they were slaves again. And then God sends a deliverer, sends a leader by the name of Nehemiah, and he brings them back into the land of blessing. It's just as repeated, like Yahweh coming down, delivering through someone, bringing back up into a place of freedom. It's, that's kind of the pattern, but, but it never really fixes itself permanently. And that's because there's something far deeper by way of oppression than, that, than political oppression. That is, there, there is this deep-seated oppression that's found in the human soul right here in every one of us. And it's, it's that sin-bent, cult, uh, corrupted self. That's where it starts. Outside of us, there are these lies and deceptions that tangle up and, and confuse and delude. May sound archaic, but satanic forces of darkness deluding the world. And on top of that, you have the reign of death apart against which nobody has won ever. So you have these, these deeply oppressive realities of sin and, 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 and satanic deception and death itself. That is fundamentally the deepest oppression is moral and spiritual. That's why those political deliverances never really took because there's something deeper. Which brings us to the, watch it, the big you. All right? Of Yahweh, in his redeeming steadfast love, and that word is almost connect, always connected to his name. You know, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He comes down and delivers to bring up. Only when you get to the center of history, he doesn't send a fallen, broken man. Yahweh sends himself. He comes down. To deliver by way of substitution and to bring us up and give us life and lead us into the new creation. That is permanent. Okay? That's one of the most remarkable statements I think that Jesus made in the New Testament. Makes this very point. You read it earlier on the slide, but it's, it's worth reading again. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, that's a way of saying what, what's about, I'm about to say is extremely important, emphatic. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. All those things I had on the list before, the one who exists, the one who's personal, the one who's present among his people, the one who's the sovereign one and the redeeming one, finds their perfect like clarity and embodiment in the person of Jesus Christ. This is Yahweh come in the flesh. That's what he's saying. I am. I'm the one who has come down personally in, in, in flesh. I'm the one who's going to deliver and lead you into the new creation. Yahweh has imprinted himself in the very person of Jesus. And let me say this. That is not generic. As much as our society would like us to continue to depersonalize and genericize. Yes, I just made that word up. Genericize God so as not to... To, to unnecessarily offend somebody. And there's a place for being sensitive. God is passionate about making his mark distinctive. And he's saying in the person of Jesus, this is 
who I am, and the world has to deal with him as he has presented himself. You take me or leave me. The whole of Scripture and the whole of history has been working toward the moment where Yahweh himself would imprint himself in the most understandable way for humans to understand. And he will not be genericized. You know, I was thinking this may seem like a digression, but it, 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 it feels a little bit dehumanizing when people uh, generalize or genericize us. I, my father-in-law took me fishing years and years and years ago, two o'clock in the morning on Christmas Eve. Some of you know the story. Some of you don't know what I'm, most of you, all of you don't know what I'm about to tell you in the story. But he took me two o'clock in the morning in Forks. We're going to float the Forks River and, 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 and uh, we're going to fish for steelhead. And, um, and I went out of duty to my father-in-law, never wanted to get up at two. And of course, true to form, it always rains in Washington, at least Western Washington, and it rained. So there we are on the river, and, and the guy who's guiding the boat, his name's Craig, and uh, he knows my father-in-law. My father-in-law's name, Runer, uh, an uncommon name, but that's what he knows about. They're, they're good friends, and I introduced myself to Craig. Hey, I'm Dan. Yeah, this is my son-in-law, Dan. We get in the boat. We're going down, and he'd stop the boat, and then we'd let out our line, you know, unreal, and let it go down the river, and then hopefully get a big salmon, which I never even got a bite, um, but he'd say, hey, Runer, go ahead. We're stopped. Let it out, like 24, just out 24 uh, revolutions of the real. He'd do it, and he'd look over at me, and you know what he'd say? Hey, you. <laughs> Let out yours 23. He did that the whole time. Never once called me by name. It was always, hey, you. I just thought to myself, you know, I do have a name, you know. <laughs> and that was him, but I'll tell you what. The Lord doesn't want his people looking up into the sky and say, hey, you, whoever you are, ambiguous and nebulous, whoever you are, will you help me out? It's like, no. I gave you my name. I imprinted my name in a person. I showed you myself. That's the name by which you live. That's the name by which you call out to me. That's the name by which you worship me. It's personal. All wrapped up in this, this name, Yahweh. And see, it's, it's sacred. And, and my hope is that when you hear that name or when you think of that name, it's more than just four letters or Lord, L-O-R-D. You'll know this is who... This embodies something. This embodies a God that's real. He exists. He's personal. He hears my cry, and I can pray to him. And he will respond to me in some way, shape, or form. And he's present in my pain. He's present in my past. He's present in my present. He's present in my future. To know that he stands sovereign over my circumstances and over my future, and to know that he gave his life for me. Do you believe it? you take a moment if you're with somebody you know and I just want you to pray for them if you're with somebody you don't know that's fine you can pray for yourself but there's something about and I just want to make it simple because I want to pray that we believe this of someone praying over another audibly and if you're comfortable praying with the friend or the spouse you're with will you just turn now and pray reciprocally Lord God help us to believe um, in your name and what that embodies. Help us to know that you're personal. Help us to know that you're existent. Help us to know you're present. Help us to know you're sovereign. Help us to know that you redeem us. And even if you're a little bit uncomfortable, you know, sometimes we don't grow until we take a step past discomfort and just say, I'm going to pray for my wife. Never done it, but I'm going to do it right now. Um, so will you take just a moment as a response to this? Lord, make this a reality.
Help us to believe at the deepest levels of our being because it makes a massive difference whether we believe um, he is who he named himself to be. To take a couple of moments, 30, 40 seconds, and, and then let's worship the name of, of the I Am. Mm-hmm.